God in unexpected places. This is the Messy Spirituality Podcast. Here's Jason Elam. My guest today is Stephen Barber. Stephen is a 29-year-old United Methodist pastor currently on sabbatical. He has been married to Megan, his wife, who is also a United Methodist pastor for seven years. They have a beautiful little girl, Guinevere, who will be turning three later this month. Happy birthday, Gwen. Stephen is pursuing his Master's of Intercultural Studies and church planting at Asbury Theological Seminary. He is in a season of starting a ministry that has been on his heart since October of 2008. Just launched a blog called St. Martin's Coogee Sweater. We're going to get some answers about that title and is open to whatever God has for him in this process. Welcome to the Messy Spirituality Podcast, Stephen Barber. It is so good to be here, Jason. You know, as we are in this new concept of virtual space, I am just in awe like, to be in the same space as like, so many great leaders of the faith. And so thank you for having me. I, I don't know what I'm doing here, but I feel honored like, to like, be in the same place as like, so many heroes and like future saints of the faith. And so thank you so much. This is such an honor. Well, man, it's an honor for me to have this conversation with you. I know back when I lived in Alabama and you live in Alabama, um, I, I kept hoping that our paths would cross. And I know that we tried to get together one time. It didn't work out. And so I'm, I'm grateful for this conversation at least. Uh, can you, bef- before we get too far into your story, give us some of your spiritual backstory. Were you raised in an atmosphere of faith? Yeah. So this is a bit complicated. Well, I don't guess so, because I think we all have a bit of a dysfunctional or a broken family somewhere along the lines. So I was raised by a single mom, and that's something I'm very proud of. And all of my mom's family is Roman Catholic. And so I grew up kind of on the fringes of the Catholic tradition. I went to, I went, I went to Mass as often as I could with my great-grandmother, and I observed a lot of the Catholic tradition. I was baptized in the Disciples of Christ at 12 or 13 or so. And in my late teens, I found the non-denom, charismatic, Holy Ghost-filled like, church. And I consider that to be my faith tradition, just because that's when Jesus became real with me. Um, I know we'll get to that later, but I was raised on the fringes of Roman Catholicism, and I haven't understood the beauty of that. And until over the past couple of years, and my wife and I um, have talked as United Methodists that we feel like quarantine has made us more Roman Catholic because uh, we've just been studying the saints like catechesis and all of that. So on the fringes of Roman Catholicism is where my faith background is. So let's go ahead and dive into your personal faith journey. You, you referenced a time in your life when Jesus became more real to you, or your faith became more real to you. Tell us what happened. Tell us about that. Yeah, so I was 17, and I was raised by a single mom, as I said, but there was a short season in life where she did marry a guy. And right about 17, he divorced my mom, and my mom divorced him, and, and I was heartbroken over it. And so I talked to a friend who I worked with, who I knew knew Jesus, and and he was one of those people that the love of God just he just poured out of him, and he invited me to church, and he invited me to this. It's a very non-denom, charismatic, Holy Ghost filled, and Holy Ghost filled church like I had never seen before. The people were happy, they were waving flags, they were dancing, everybody was joyful, everybody was loving and kind, and it wasn't long after that. 
after my initial visit to that church, I, I ran, I ran into a Jesus that loves me radically. That it doesn't matter who I am or even what my background is or even where I'm going in life. He loves me just as I am um, in the moment. And I ran into that Jesus and, and it absolutely changed my life. Because as I said, I, you know, I was baptized when I was 12 or 13 or so. But I really think that was just like the Southern culture of being baptized, as well as like I was really scared of hell. I think we've all been there. But I fell madly in love with Jesus at, at 17 at this church that was a church like I had never experienced before. I was there as often as the doors were open. Then it seemed like a couple months later, I had this experience in my bedroom with nobody around but where I felt that I was filled with the Holy Spirit in my life um, in a new and in, and in a fresh way. Like that was big for me because I was skeptical that that was even possible. And, and you know, so it's almost like God uh, had to take me to my bedroom away from everything. And I remember that night when my mom was cooking spaghetti, I could smell spaghetti upstairs and, and I was, I was in my bedroom and, and, and I just encountered the Holy Spirit and it even changed my life even more so like for the better. And so like a few years after that, I did this crazy thing, Jason. I don't, I, I, I don't know if you've ever experienced it or not, but I started reading all the red words in scripture kind of for myself and just kind of coming up and just like doing my own research and looking at commentary. And I realized that maybe Jesus that was even more radical than I thought he was. And I realized that even, even some of these things that Southern culture tells you that a good Christian has to believe that, that maybe there was a little bit more gray there than what was led on like by the church. And, and then even from there, my life was changed even more so. And so, you know, I feel madly in love with Jesus at 17. You know, I don't have the story of where I was raised in church all my life. And I don't have the story of where I said a prayer when I was like three or four or five. It, it's a story that my daughter will have, but, but it's not my story. And I had a good about five years where Jesus just became this radical incarnate of love to me. As the years went by, the more loving that I understood Jesus as, and the more I understood the life of Jesus. And so it was around that time, it was more of a season that my faith became real through a, a series of steps than anything. But yeah, but for sure, it started at 17 and it lasted just, it lasted a few years of just like diving into the depths of faith and into the depths of this Jesus that I ran into head on when I was 17 years old. And even still today, I'm learning and growing. And I'm so thankful for that. But yeah, so that's when faith became real to me. So, so at what point did you start to feel drawn to pastoral ministry? So I remember this time in my life where I was a teen at summer camp with, I mean, I was at a YMCA camp with like the DOC, with the Disciples of Christ. I remember an altar call of sorts that night, and it was an odd altar call. It was one that I had not experienced before. It was for anyone who was feeling called to pastoral ministry. 
And I don't know what made me do it. I don't know what made me, I don't know what made me stand up that night, but I remember it was me and one other girl. Like we got up and went to the front. I couldn't even tell you what age I was, but I remember that as kind of the start of it. Like, But as things went on, I kind of forgot about that moment. And even so, I became president of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. It was my junior and senior year of high school. And, you know, we did incredible things at our school. Anything from um, holding like daily prayer meetings on a break time, like praying for students, like leading like quite a few follow. You know, we even led quite a few students to be followers of Jesus. We had like prayer walks regularly. That we prayed with teachers. We did awesome things in the public school that I listened to people tell me that wasn't allowed now that I've been a pastor. And all those things were done out of the mercy of God. And that was just another sign of God leading me to lead other people in the faith. I said I didn't run into Jesus until I was 17. And so I spent most of my junior year like talking about a Jesus that I didn't really know anything about. I knew of Jesus, but I didn't know Jesus. And it was the spring break of my junior year where I had that experience that changed my life. Uh, So then when I guess when my faith is when my call became real to me, it was one night after youth and my youth pastor at the time, he sat me down and and he said, Stephen, you have a call on your life and we need to do something with it. And he handed me some papers to go to Master's Commission, which is an intensive discipleship program through the Assemblies of God. And I ended up going to Master's Commission, and I traveled all over the country, and I spoke to groups of people, and I led people, and I worked with the homeless community in Huntsville, Alabama. And as God's way always finds a way, like one thing led to the next. And before I knew it, I was a volunteer youth pastor. Then I was a full-time youth pastor. Then I was leading the church. And so it's much like my faith journey. It's hard to pinpoint exactly when that was. It seems that when God is doing a work in my life, it's just I'm on this journey and I'll have doors open and doors closed. And I just had all the right doors open, I suppose. And so, like, yeah, so I think that is how I became a pastor, for better or for worse. And how long were you a pastor in the local church? I started pastoring when I was 25, so uh, I was a lead pastor from the time I was 25 on, so it was about four years or so. I was a youth pastor before that from, like, 22, and so I was in the local church, like, serving in ministry, in, in pastoral ministry for uh, roughly eight years. Gotcha. Would you consider your time in local church ministry a blessing, a burden, or more of a mixed bag? Well, the pastor in me wants to say that it was a blessing because it's always a blessing, Jason. But, <laughs> right, of course. Yeah. <laughs> in honest reflection, that I, you know, I would honestly have to say that it was a mixed bag. Like I said, I became a youth pastor at 22, and at 25, I pastored my first royal church. And I can say that ministry has changed drastically in eight years. Offering hope to the hopeless that never gets old. And building um, healthy systems and establishing the kingdom of God in a community never gets old and brings me great joy. And ministry would be excellent if it wasn't for the people involved in ministry. But then I guess it wouldn't be ministry. And so I think what's made it difficult, what's made it a mixed bag is the increasing polarization of the small rural church as of late. 
has made things really hard. Also, changing broken systems and mindset is, is always a job. And, you know, I also had something come up in my journey that I wasn't expecting. Like I said, I was raised by a single mother. So uh, becoming a father was my greatest hope and my worst nightmare all in the same. And so when I found out that my wife was pregnant, I had, I guess, a mental breakdown. And so for the past three or so years, I've lived with mental health struggles and depression. And, you know, when you're a pastor in, in rural Alabama, it's hard to deal with those and process those as they need to be dealt with because, you know, because you're a pastor and that's not what's supposed to happen here. So, and there are a lot of church people are not just, are really just not ready to have those conversations. And, you know, every time that I would initially try to open up about it, I would be challenged with, well, if you have depression, just like twiddle your thumbs, you know? And this isn't anything new that any of us haven't heard in the local church if we have some kind of mental health struggle. But all that stuff's really hard when you're trying to lead people. And yet, you know, and it also seems that you're fighting just to be okay that day. I guess one way I'm grateful for this podcast is because you guys introduced me to a guy that I have come to know and appreciate, Steve Austin. I, I have grown to love Steve and the work that he is doing just on a topic of mental health as well as depression. And so over the past year or so, I've become I get more open about my struggles as I've realized that it's not doing anybody any good like not to like, talk about it. And so I have found that there are a lot of my church members that have been dealing with the same thing that just needed to have permission like, to deal with it. And so, yeah, that was something that kind of came up in my pastoral journey that I really wasn't expecting. But it's been a large part of my story. It's why I've had to be really good about setting boundaries and not becoming overworked because that's what I'll always give myself to. And yeah, so I know you didn't ask for all that, but that's part of ministry. That's part of just how it's been a mixed bag. Yeah. Yeah, I understand completely. I know that if that life in the fishbowl of being a local church pastor, it's so hard. And when you add depression and mental health struggles to that, and especially somebody who's kind of a workaholic and a perfectionist and, and really wants to give their whole heart to something, especially when you see it as being done for God and, and for this Jesus you're in love with, you just want to go all in. And that just makes it so easy to let boundaries slide and to cost you and your family so much more than you bargained for. And so I'm grateful that you uh, found Steve Austin. Steve is such a great resource, just a great guy, but a fantastic resource for mental health in the church. Yeah, absolutely. I absolutely agree with that. So what what did you enjoy most about pastoral ministry? I firmly believe that the kingdom of God is better when we set aside our denominational titles and we come together and we worship together. And, and that is something that's been, if I was to have a thumbprint on a ministry, all of my ministries at one point that I've had over the course of my time in ministry have always been like churches of other denominations coming together and like building bridges. You know, that's something that I has been my greatest joy as a pastor is just getting pastors to the table, like getting churches to the table to come together for worship. In my first church, I pastored, it was my church and like another church in the community 
I had a broken relationship and it was ugly. The churches weren't speaking to each other. You know, it was ugly. And yet this is my call. This is what I feel that is one of my purposes in ministry is to bring people together. And so I got the church leaders to the table and I was able to like make amends. And we had a week, a Sunday night worship service. Uh, it, uh, it, it was like once a month for like two years or something where these people from very different ideologies would just come together, you know, just to have people like worship together and pray together, take Holy Communion together. Uh, at my latest appointment as a pastor, I had all the major church pastors like come to the table. And of course, I served in a town of about a thousand people. So we did a first Wednesday and our first Wednesday it was all the churches coming together for worship. And in a town of a thousand people, if you get Baptist and Methodist, and if you get Church of God, and if you get all the other little churches that you might find in a small town together around the communion table to take Holy Communion, that's really something. And so if I had to say that, if anything was my greatest joy, uh, is bringing the body of Christ together and healing division in communities. That way they could be a greater witness um, to their community. Yeah, that's my greatest joy. I remember following you on social media during some of those uh, those services, those joint gatherings. And I remember thinking how rare that is for the Bible Belt, especially in Alabama where we were ministering. Uh, it really is rare. Churches are just so competitive and there's so much... Um, toxic water under the bridge that, uh, I mean, there's a lot of churches just won't speak to each other. I mean, literally saying, you know, things like, well, you know, real Christians go to this church, not that church, you know, and, and things like that. And so for you to be able to bring people together in that kind of an environment was really something I was so impressed with that. And I know to folks around the country, it may not sound like a big deal, but man, in Alabama, that's a huge feat. I mean, that's an act of God. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it, it was so amazing to me, and I actually wrote a paper on it for seminary because I was so taken back about the things I witnessed in this little town. So people would come together for worship in a town of a thousand people. Okay, this is something I can't over exaggerate. There are Sunday school classes that are bigger than a thousand people in some churches, and so in a town of a thousand people, I would hear things like, "Oh, I haven't seen you all year. I haven't talked to you." And I'm like, "How do you guys not run into each other?" There's only a that we have one grocery store and, and, and also we have like two places to eat and yet y'all just don't talk to each other. And so it was really neat to see God break down some of those walls of just strife and division and, you know, just like work for the unity. And, and after, and even before I left, I got to see some fruit of that in churches holding like fall festivals together that have never worked together, churches holding like Thanksgiving services together without me having to encourage it. It was something that other churches wanted to do and they just invited me to be a guest and that was wonderful. And it was so neat that after we broke down these walls and after we met around the Holy Communion table, um, just what uh, happened in that community among the body of Christ. It's so beautiful. I know uh, we mentioned at the top of the program about you being on sabbatical right now. You, you're, you mentioned your wife is also an ordained pastor as well, and she's currently pastoring a local church. Uh, how has your experience been so far being the pastor's spouse? Yeah, so of course, 
you know, because like we're United Methodist, like she's not ordained yet. She's on her way to ordination, like, but like she's not ordained yet. She's a licensed pastor. Anybody familiar with the United Methodist system understands the complexities of that. But and so yeah, my wife is the pastor of a, uh, or I guess is the associate pastor of a fairly large church, and it's really been an experience. I I have loved being the spouse. It's been an adjustment. It's not been that hard of adjustment as I thought it was going to be. It's odd not being in conversations that you're used to being in. And so like when I go out to lunch with her and her other pastors um, on staff at this church, it's like my input's not needed. It's just because I'm not on staff. It's not, you know, it's not for any other reason. And so, and I'm not used to being in that position because like for so long, I have been the one to give input. And of course, my, and of course, my wife hasn't been a pastor for that long, and so it's like we have reversed roles because like she was the pastor's wife, and it seemed like she was the pastor's wife like for a long time, and so now we've reversed roles, and so it's been an adjustment, but I love it. I'm my wife's biggest fan. I've always been my wife's biggest fan. If you follow me on social media, that's something that I hope comes across. I love bragging on her. I love cheering her on. And so over the past two or so years, we've been at separate churches pastoring. So we haven't been able to be together on Sunday mornings. And so that also means that our daughter has had to go back and forth between the churches. And so just being able to have the family together at one church on Sunday morning or Sunday night or whenever it is, even though right now me and my daughter are at home watching on YouTube, it's been a neat experience, and I love talking to the other women in the church about like cooking and like cast iron. I love cast iron, and I found a group of ladies here uh, who love cooking with cast iron too. And so I get to play that role that I wouldn't get to play if I was the pastor, I think. And so I've absolutely loved being the pastor's spouse. It's been an adjustment, but I have loved it, and it's going to be hard. And it's making life really hard on me to, if I want to go back to pastoring a local church or not, because I've really enjoyed like, being my wife's fan and just kind of cheering her on from the sidelines and being in church with her on Sunday mornings where that hasn't been the case for the past two or three years. Yeah, I'll tell you, you and I have been friends online for quite a while, several years, I think. And uh, when uh, when your your wife got the the placement and you were able to go and attend the way the way you encourage her and brag on her and support her i just man i just have so much respect for that and i love the way that you love your wife and your daughter and uh, that's one of the main reasons i wanted to speak to you i mean i think you're just a great guy anyway but the way that you love your family is just incredible to me and i'm so grateful for the example that you provide to to me and so many others I can say this, that my wife has often said the greatest gift that my mother has ever given her is that she raised me as a single mom. Though, just because I don't have a dad, like I was raised by a mom. And so everything I do, everything I do and how I treat other people, well, I learned that from my mom. And, and I don't have a dad like, to be a good or bad influence on my life and how I treat my wife or my daughter. And so... I'm doing the best I know how to do with what I've given. And, you know, it's to go all in. So I really think, of course, I, I really think my wife would tell you that I'm at an advantage because I never had a dad like to show me any different that all I know is to give my all. And that's all that I know, you know. 
Well, you certainly seem to be thriving as a husband and father yourself, and, and I'm grateful for that example. Hey, we were talking earlier about pastoring in Alabama and the intricacies of that. I know that when I was a local church pastor in Alabama, I was constantly feeling too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives. Was that your experience as well? Were you Did you have to try to navigate that political divide in the Bible Belt Church? Uh, no, not at all. No, not at all. My church is perfect, Jason. No, just kidding. Uh, yes. <laughs> um, actually, yes. And this is really funny that you bring this up. So last year, I I was accused of being both like too liberal and too conservative within about six months of each other. I was too liberal because I wouldn't condemn people of the LGBT like Q, like community like straight to eternal torment after the UMC had uh, their like, college general conference. And I was too conservative because I was encouraging my church members like, to evangelize because I do believe I'm an evangelical in the true sense of the word, like not that I'm on a street corner, like, except I'm a bearer of the good news. And so I think that as bearers of the good news, that we have something to offer a hopeless world. And so I was accused of being too conservative on as well as too liberal in the same year. So, you know, it's interesting. So I have found that there are things in Scripture that I never thought would be political that have become political. I guess what I think of off the top of my head is Micah 6, 8, to do justice, love, mercy, to walk humbly with also to walk humbly with God, or Matthew 25, where Jesus, where he's talking to Christians, or he's talking to his disciples in the moment, and, you know, he says, I, I was hungry, and you didn't feed me. I was naked, and you didn't clothe me. I was sick, that you didn't come to visit me, in Matthew 25. And all of those things, I really didn't think should have been political, but, but over the past several years, I have watched those become increasingly political statements, and that's really troubling for me. You know, it's troubling when I quote, you know, if I quote like the red words of Scripture in context, and yet that that's still a political statement. And so I I am grieving with so many others right now as we figure out, you know, like what the faith looks like now, and how do we get back on path of of even just following the red words of scripture a little bit better, you know? And so, yeah, you know, I'll never forget that I, I was too liberal last year and I was too conservative within about six months of each other. And that was, that was really a challenging time to be a pastor. <laughs> right. I, I know that feeling very, very well. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think you picked a really great time to be on sabbatical. I'm so grateful that during the 2020 election season that I am not pastoring a local church. I mean, I miss it. I miss the people. I miss the community. But I mean, I could be a part of a community. And obviously you have that where your wife is on staff right now as well. But there, there is this responsibility. You feel like you have to speak out on things. And, um, and I enjoy speaking out. Don't get me wrong. But it seems like you can't make a statement like Black Lives Matter or wear a mask without it being political right now. And it, it shouldn't be that way, but it definitely feels like it is. I mean, I, I literally had some, I shared a passage of scripture that were red letters straight from the Gospels, and somebody asked if I was a Marxist. I'm like, first of all, you don't know what Marxism is. Secondly, this is right out of the Bible that you say you believe in. 
you know, of course, sabbatical kind of happened. It really wasn't a pre-planned thing, but I was feeling a lot of it was pre-planned in the sense of I knew about three months ahead of time that I had made the call like not to take a new church. And so but but even a year ago, I had a lot of in, I had a lot of anxiety like going into this election and, you know, just and also just like the role that I was going to play as a pastor in this role. And of course, not something else is, you know, I, I pastor in a small town in uh, central Alabama and it wasn't far from the Talladega Raceway. And if you remember, it was in the news recently because there was that supposed like noose was found above Wallace's in his, his garage. Well, this is one of those times that I was very thankful for like not being a pastor because as a pastor, I have often prided myself on being able to connect with people and just kind of being a chameleon in a culture. And so I was in a community that was big on NASCAR. And so I got big into NASCAR and I was looking at what driver I used to watch NASCAR when I was a kid, but I really hadn't kept up with it. But over the past three or four years, I started kind of paying attention and I became a huge Bubba Wallace fan. Well, you know, because Bubba was born in Mobile, Alabama. So it was more of, uh, I'm a homer than anything, you know? And when all of that broke, I was so thankful to not have to be in front of a church on Sunday mornings. You know, just because of the, you know, because of the overpolarization and the political divide, and all that goes into that, and uh, everybody, everybody knew that I was a Bubba Wallace fan because I talked about it regularly, and I still am. I, you know, I've got one of those Black Lives Matter cars I pre-ordered. It'll be here in December, you know. But I'm a huge Bubba Wallace fan, and I hate that it happened to him. And I was so thankful to see like, NASCAR's response to that. And I was also disappointed like, to see the blowback that they got from it. And yeah, it was one of those moments where I was like, I'm really grateful to not be in a church because I know that I would have had to have some conversations that wouldn't have been very nice. And so, yeah, I'm very thankful for that. <laughs> like another time sabbatical came in at the right time. So tell us, bef- before I let you go today, I really want to hear about your new blog and any other projects that you're working on. Tell us what you're doing now. Yeah, so... And so I guess like calling back to my like, Roman Catholicism roots, I have been deeply inspired by St. Martin de Porres. He is a saint from Lima, Peru. He's the patron saint of hairstylists and of innkeepers and of mixed race people and of poor people and of public education and public health and public schools and like, race relations as well as social justice. And I identify with his story and the fact that at birth, he was disregarded by his father. He's the son um, of a Spanish nobleman, and his mother is a Peruvian slave. And so his father rejected him early in life. And as he grew up, he joined the Dominican order of of preachers in Peru. And he became a great icon of faith. He was one of, you know, he's one of the first black saints. He's just an incredible person that has deeply inspired me. And so I'm currently working um, on a new ministry called St. Martin's Mission. It's what we alluded to in the opening of a dream that I've had since 2008. I've had a dream of opening up a church inside of a barber shop since October 2008. And I've kind of just sat on it. And, you know, over the past couple of years, I just I felt that it's time to start putting that together. And so I am in the process of starting a new ministry that is called St. Martin's Mission. 
our mission is to create community, cultivate that community, and also to outreach the neighborhoods in which we are operating in. Our idea is to wedge like the two things that used to be uh, central parts of every community that is like church and the barbershop or hair salon. And we want worship and community like to happen in the hair salon and barbershop where the people already are and where we can create a safe place for community like to happen, where we can um, cultivate that community with, I guess, like mentorships and overall healthy examples of what it looks like, like to live uh, in a life-giving community. Then we want to outreach those neighborhoods and offer home repair or offer anything else that's needed like to uplift the people in our community in which the hair salons and the barbershops are and like where we are meeting as a missional community. I'm in the process this week of getting everything I need like for the lawyer, like for the first round of paperwork. And so I can make that an official nonprofit. In the meantime, I am working on two extensions of that ministry. Of course, the first is my blog, like St. Martin's Coochie Sweater. Like I said, I was raised by a single mom. I was raised on a hip-hop influence in my life. I am married. I have a daughter. I stutter. I love Jesus. I love discussing how and I, I love having conversation about how political powers came to be. And I've also found that there seems to be a void in the media market for people like me um, who are raised by single parents or who who are either in broken or dysfunctional homes, who are trying to be a parent and who are trying to figure out life and are trying uh, to make a marriage work. And so this is my hope for the blog, just to be a, a source of hope for others. I say that St. Martin de Porres and Biggie Smalls are the patriarchs of the blog. Uh, so that means that nothing is off limits. And <laughs> I love it. Yeah, because we're talking about anything, anything and everything. And a Coogee sweater, uh, if you're familiar with it, it's made of different colors and it's made of different threads and it's made of different designs. And so is life. And that's okay. And you know, even though we all may have a mixed bag of life and it may not look ideal or aesthetically pleasing, it is something that we can proudly wear. And so that's the idea behind the blog. I'm really excited about that. I had my first international reader this morning, so that was a big deal. And also, I am working on some t-shirts. I am working on a t-shirt line called Culture Vulture. I was recently called a culture vulture in a derogatory sense. And so Urban Dictionary calls a culture vulture a person who profits off the culture but doesn't care about the culture. And so this person was not a person who who really doesn't know that I have hip-hop as a big influence in my life and that I was just trying to capitalize off something because it was cool. And as I was looking up uh, and as I was looking at what it meant, I ran across a definition and in Webster's and in, I guess, like Cambridge as well. And it is a person who is overly interested in the arts. And so a culture vulture is a person that is overly interested in the arts. And that's what I am. And that's what I am running with. And so the Feast of St. Martin is on November 3rd. And I have some kids in my community that I want to help feed that day. It's also election day, so I really want to be feeding kids that day instead of at home watching the news. And so I'm in the process of making some shirts right now, and all the proceeds, and all and all and all the proceeds, and all the proceeds for those shirts that will go to feed these kids on November third. 
I'll have more on my social media platforms in the coming weeks as I as as I get this nailed down. I want to make sure that I have everything ready to go. And so our goal is on November 3rd like, to be in our community like feeding kids with the proceeds we made off of these t-shirts we're going to sell. So I'm really excited about that. What a great idea. I love that so much. I love that you're doing it. Man, I really appreciate the time that you've spent with me today. How can folks who are listening to you online today uh, engage with you and your work online? Yeah. So to follow me, I'm on, I am on Facebook at Stephen W. Barber, S-T-E-V-E-N. I'm also part of the Messy Conversations group. And so after this drops, I'll post in that too. I am also on Twitter and Instagram at I am S.W. Barber. I am S.W. Barber. And if you want to follow the blog and if you want to get updates about shirts, you can follow me on, on either Facebook or WordPress or Medium at St. Martin's Coogee Sweater, at St. Martin's Coogee Sweater. And, and also you spell Coogee, C-O-O-G-I. And on Twitter at St. Martin Tweets. And so, yeah, so I will also post all of that in the Messy Conversation group as well. Fantastic. We're going to link to all of Stephen's social media, to his blog, and uh, we'll provide updates on the t-shirts as those develop in the show notes of this episode. Stephen, thank you so much, brother. I love you and I appreciate the work that you do. Hey, I appreciate it. This has been fun. I love you guys too. Thank you so much for all that you do, Jason. You've been listening to the Messy Spirituality Podcast. You can find us on Facebook and visit us online at MessySpirituality.org. You can help spread the word about the podcast by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes and sharing links to each episode on your social media. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode.